When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Bird Shop Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we've got part one of our Q&A with Fritz Heller. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 246. All right, welcome to another episode of the Bird Shop Podcast, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We've got Q&A on all things flushing dogs and grouse with Fritz Heller. Part one of that conversation coming up in just a moment. I will quickly thank Patreon patrons of the Bird Shop Podcast and announce our latest giveaway winner. All those out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show, keep these conversations coming your way. And all patrons are eligible for our Patreon giveaways, some bonus content, and some Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers. Up for grabs on our last giveaway was a t-shirt, tumbler, and decal from the folks over at Bird Dog of the Day. And our winner was Rocky, who I will be connecting with Seth over at Bird Dog of the Day this week. So thanks to Rocky for being a Patreon supporter of the show. Thanks again to the folks at Bird Dog of the Day. And don't forget, anybody out there listening can use the promo code BIRDSHOT to save 15% through the end of the year on anything at birddogoftheday.com. So check that out as well. All right, I'm fresh off an extended stay at the Northwoods Cabin for the ninth year of grouse camp with a couple of good friends of mine. Hard to believe it's been nine years already, but this year's camp was enjoyable as always, and we are already looking forward to year number 10 next year. But it was an awesome time to be in the woods. We fortunately hit a really, really nice weather window after getting some snow last week. It was pretty much full coverage, but 
it hasn't been that cold yet. The ground isn't totally frozen, and then the temps warm back up a little bit. So that snow has slowly faded away, and we wound up with a really consistent weather window of temps in the upper 30s and 40s with light and variable winds, and it was just a perfect timing for this camp this year, and we had a run of days in the woods. Bird numbers were good. We'll hit and miss here and there, but that's to be expected with grouse hunting, and we had some really solid hunting in a time of year that lends itself to peak grouse hunting conditions. And fortunately, it looks like that's going to hold for a bit here at least. Uh, the rifle deer season is going on in Minnesota, so that is a factor, but that hasn't quite started yet in Wisconsin and Michigan. We've got some warmer temps on the way, actually. So I am certain there are many listeners out there still hitting the grouse woods and enjoying primetime conditions. I will be one of them as I have availability over the next couple of weeks, and we'll see what the late season holds for us after that. But I don't know about you, I am still in full-on grouse mode, and that certainly lends itself to our conversation with Fritz Heller today. If you haven't heard his interviews before, he's out of Michigan. He's a very avid, diehard grouse hunter, hunts with Labrador Retrievers, has been doing it for a long time. He's got a boatload of experience, and I always appreciate his thoughts on ruffed grouse and grouse dogs, and I know the listeners do as well because we got a bunch of questions for Fritz this year. So with that said, we're going to move into part one of our conversation with Fritz. We chatted for a couple hours, going through listener questions, and we took a quick break pretty much right in the middle of that conversation, which lended itself perfectly to a part one and part two setup. So thanks to everyone that submitted questions. Let's talk grouse and grouse dogs. And welcome into the conversation and back to the Bird Shop Podcast, Fritz Heller. All right, we are on the Bird Shop Podcast. Welcome back once again, Fritz. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's, well, day before Halloween today. Uh, You've been out in the woods lately? Uh, I've been in the woods as much as the weather's allowed. <laughs> Has it been uh, raining over there? Yeah, we you know we started the season with uh, unbelievable temperatures that were really warm, which limited kind of the early season. And then uh, I had a nice trip, got home, got in a fair amount of hunts. Once I worked uh, worked through my piles of, of paperwork to get caught back up on. Yeah. And then last week it rained, uh, Monday to Friday, so I did not hunt. And then uh, I hunted pretty hard Saturday, and I hunted for, I don't know, a couple hours yesterday afternoon until it started raining again. Yeah. So this season's been really hard to figure out just based on the weather, and it's limited uh, some of my time field. Yeah. So you, when we were chatting last week, you didn't even you didn't even get any woods time on on Friday. I got zero woods time oh, Friday. Bummer. I did uh, fall chores. It was sixty eight degrees and super humid and rain on and off all day. <laughs> I kind of had the reverse. I I was I was hoping to go Friday, but then we had some scheduling issues and. Um, my wife had a haircut appointment at 3.45 in the afternoon, and it got canceled. So I, I actually got to go hunting on Friday afternoon and had a really good really good hunt. It was nice. It was, it was a little windy, but uh, got in the woods, and it wasn't too bad. And then 
we it really cooled down here so you say 68 degrees i'm it's 24 degrees here today and uh, i'm sure you guys are going to cool down pretty quick here but we've had one frost yeah in the northern lower fall year and then we got one last night so i feel like that's maybe been the strangest thing about or one of the strangest things about this fall is there there really was like hardly any freeze or frost up until just now and the and now the temps have have dropped but i mean we lost leaves early because it was there were some drought like conditions i felt like so the cover thinned out a little bit but there had been up to this point there had been not much to like take down the ground vegetation at all right this is kind of interesting but well i know your uh your minnesota trip is behind you this year um your western trip we we're talking a little bit later this year and i'm looking forward to that we've had both had some time in the woods um got off to a little bit of a bumpy start transmission went out in the truck i mean bit of a rocky yeah. road this year yeah yeah what's up <laughs> nothing you want to do i'm grateful that the transmission in my truck went out in a town and uh you know you got seven dogs and four guns and the case of ammo and four you know dog food and there's that's never fun part of the adventure that's the adventure i guess yeah. i'm fifty four hundred dollars lighter <laughs> uh in the bank account and yeah, so we rallied, and, and our friends uh, changed their course and, and drove up to home and picked up Rick's truck and uh, brought us Rick's truck, and we spent an extra night in that town. We lost a half a day of hunting. And uh, we piled in Rick's truck, and I left my uh, I left my truck with a, a great UP auto shop, and uh, they said, we'll do everything we can to get it done, and the next seven days and rolled back in a week later and it was finished and drove home lovely <laughs> so it's running great now yeah that's good that's good i yeah i i would maybe be inclined to say well it's better than a sharp stick in the eye but then that happened too uh, yeah <laughs> second second day of the trip you know the shooting glasses i wear uh are the rangers and they've mm-hmm. got a, a pretty wide gap beneath them and they're still, in my opinion, the best shooting glasses I've ever worn. And I, I like just turned my head left and cover and scratch, scratched my eyeball, and it itched and irritated and wasn't wasn't great. And then I woke up the next morning and my eye was essentially goop shut. Ugh. And uh, so I took a picture and sent it to the medical professional I live with, me and Mary. <laughs> and uh, she said. Uh, well, uh, that needs an antibiotic, and you need to get in the shower and a warm tom press and get that thing de-gooped. And I'm calling you in a prescription. So the closest Walgreens is about 35 minutes away, and you're anxious to go hunting. So 35 minutes one way into town to get some antibiotic eye, eye drops and uh, turn around and 35 minutes back to where we were headed. And... and uh, Got the day started a little later than anticipated. My eye hurt for 48 hours. And the first 24 hours when I woke up was not enjoyable. Uh, but it, it's 100% now. I'm lucky I didn't get it. I never had blurry vision or anything. It was just really swollen and droopy and disgusting. Rolling with the punches, man. Any uh, mm-hmm. any effect to the 
to the. I mean, why wouldn't this stuff happen this season when you know the weather's been? You're feeling crunched as it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's my one week a year to really hunt super hard these days. Yep. Yep. Any uh, so it sounds like no uh, no effect to the to the shooting vision after that. I no, I think it did impact my shooting. I, I did not shoot as well as I normally do. And since I've returned, I, I seem to be back to shooting at a pretty high percentage. But no, I do think it impacted my shooting a little bit to the point where my brother asked me one point, what is wrong with your shooting? <laughs> what eye? So, what Was it your dominant eye? No, it was my left okay, eye. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I mean, so, certainly could but understand how... both eyes open yeah. and depth perception and, and who knows what else. Did you, I don't know if it was your main priority in the moment, but did you happen to see, like, what was it that got you? Was it a, was it a hazel? I have no No idea. (laughs) Hazel or, you know, something. Yeah. 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 Well, that, when you had mentioned that to me a week ago, I was laughing because I had a, I'm like on high alert pins and needles now because I had a, a little twig go about as deep as it could go into my ear without doing anything. Yeah. I was, I had my dog on point and I was moving through the woods and just that perfect head tilt and twig went right in there and actually snapped off and I could feel like a pain and I I froze and I kind of put my finger up there and I felt the stick and every time I twinge it you know I would feel this little pain I was fortunately able to just grab it and pull it out it was a it was a one inch plus stick and that didn't feel good (laughs) no jeez yeah it's amazing our dogs don't get hurt more oh my gosh I had a dog six years ago take a thorn to the eye yep. and, and thankfully they were able to keep the eye and that was a thorn it, i remember that, that. Was a thorn okay. yeah there was a hole right in her eyeball that they had to finally get the swelling down and sewed it up so yeah yeah i don't i don't know how they how they navigate that stuff and and again don't come away injured more often it's just if you really watch closely i almost think they close their eyes sometimes yeah yeah as they're kind of pushing through things Right. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, the Ranger glasses that you have, I I started using those now too, kind of largely based on your recommendation. I have a different one. You guys still have the kind of the classic ones, right? We do have the classic ones, and the, and the reason I've got them is because prescription works a lot better with flat lenses than oh, curved lenses. Sure. Yep. And the prescription I need requires kind of, for the most part, a flat lens. Okay. So. And then also, you know, they they really engineered those well, where the temple piece is pretty high up your forehead. Mm-hmm. So when you mount a gun, you're you're staring dead through the middle of the lens. Yep. You're not staring at any kind of temple piece. Yep. Yeah, they are nice though, and they've got great lenses and and really good color selection. I remember asking kind of what your favorite one was, and right. I got a I got a nice little three lens kit that basically has everything. I mean, it's got the yellow for the overcast and. Um, I think I, I have the purple ones for the high sun, and then there's a middle one. I mean, it's just it's a really really nice uh, nice little kit. So Ranger glasses, I like them. Not easy on the wallet for what you feel like you get. Yes, and so funny, the one that I got, I felt like was actually a pretty good deal. I think it was one hundred and sixty dollars for a three lens kit because it's. I don't know if they're I, like. Do you have glass? Do you know if yours are glass? Mine are the high polycarbonate okay. plastic, but I'm guessing that the reason mine are 450 bucks for frames and three three new lenses is, three sets of lenses is because of the prescription. prescription sure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so 
they're I mean they do have a lot of options which is good I guess but you can fi- you can find something that that works for you but it is nice to get the the kit and the lenses swap out easy enough and you can change them right there right. at the truck that helps so just, just be careful that those lenses are in there secure and tight and get yourself a small pair of pliers without teeth on them if you need to do like you know adjustments to make sure they're in they're, they're in there sure. tight because they, those lenses aren't aren't held on but by two little knobs yeah and you know they're prone to, to losing the lens if you're not careful yeah 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 all right man well we are we're gonna do q a today and we got a bunch of them so i put a thing out on instagram and um we're gonna just jump in because i had have no idea how long this is gonna take have you tried to organize them or are we just going random? i did i organized them slightly they are separated by dogs so dog related questions and then more bird related questions and then there's just a couple in the other category. So um, okay. should be a pretty good flow to them. I haven't really tr- – there, there was there was not a ton of overlap. You know, I'm, we'll cover some of the same stuff, but and we'll can, we can weed and curate as we go through. But um, for the most part, there were some really good questions and a real wide variety. So it's got some good stuff. So I'm going to jump in. This first question is the longest one. This is my buddy Chuck. He he wrote me an email and gave a ton of background um, and a bunch of other sort of multiple questions, but he asked some really, really good ones. So we're going to start here and kind of see where this where this gets us. But all right, so Chuck writes in. He is He gave some background. He's 62, stays active, and is in still in decent condition, he thinks. He's got a two-and-a-half-year-old lab. Dog has some formal field training this past summer with Smith, silent command trainer. This season is the second season of hunting ruffed grouse for both the dog and me. Good or bad, I'll have to admit that the majority of where I walk is on a trail path. Sometimes it's an obvious trail, sometimes it's faint, overgrown, but I'm almost always on a trail of some sort. I will get off the trail from time to time when I don't need a machete. Uh, his lab has some pointing lab genetics. He's seen him point birds, seen and unseen, that are close to the trail. He will run through a brick wall to retrieve a down bird and seems to do a very good job locating, tracking down birds that still have working legs. Several times he has come back with a bird that he's lost sight of through the trees. All right, so here's that's the background. Here's the question. How do I get my lab to leave the path trail try, and try to locate birds? Um, he did, I'll, re- I'll read this and, and I might rearrange this, but when my dog catches scent, he will leave the trail to track the birds and he'll stay on it if he's, if it's strong. However, most of the time he seems to stay on the trail like me and just pick the low hanging fruit. Would it help if I got off the trail more often? Does it come with more experience? I wonder how often we are missing birds. Uh, you know, the, the fact is that Chuck's going to foot flush a number of birds on the trail for himself. And so the purpose of a dog is to locate and, and a flushing dog is to put birds in the air within gun range yep. and make sure that that bird is focused on the dog and not the gunner. So some of it could be age. The dog needs to associate that the birds live in the woods and not on the trail. And so the path of least resistance for the dog is the trail. Mm-hmm. But once he figures out, I'm going to find more birds, I'm going to get more retrieves by working the appropriate pattern while the hunter walks the trail, he's going to be further ahead. So it could be 
lack of exposure, right? The dog just hasn't had enough experience. Yep. Getting into the woods with a young dog at that age, and, and I always count like adult seasons, right? So if I start the season with a seven month old, it just whatever happens, happens. And then that first adult season, you know, and, and second adult season, by the third adult season, we should be pretty well humming. Yeah. And we should be applying, you know, a search pattern for a flushing dog that's appropriate to the terrain. But certainly getting off a trail would encourage the dog to learn and understand, oh, I find grouse in this type of habitat or in, this, in these conditions. I don't find them walking a trail or, you know, walking a road edge or, or whatever it may be. Yep. So it's probably a combination of exposure and experience. And then there's things you can do to encourage. I use the in command and the hand signal a lot. And then there's also influence training. So when you say, when you say in command, like you're sending the dog into something you want him to check out. Yeah. I spend a lot of time on an edge and I say in, and I want the dog to make a cast into the cover. And then they start to associate what's in front of them and what's not. And hopefully they start running the cover. I mean, example was last night I was hunting. Uh, I was I was hunting pretty specific clumps of thick cover. Okay. But at times I was walking through a, a fern field, and my dogs. Now I, I'm in a pretty good place right now because I've got I've got an old dog that's twelve and a half, still giving me one or two spots a day. And then I've got an eight-year-old, seven-year-old, and a three-and-a-half-year-old. And my three-and-a-half-year-old last night, I mean, I had to slow her down because she's, she's, she's running across the field to the next clump of cover. Yep. Because she's learned that, you know, I'm not finding birds in this burn field. They're in that wood thicket, right? Yeah. So some of it is association and exposure, but getting, getting off the trail with a young dog a young flushing dog is certainly really vital. And then, and then, so I use in. So for whatever reason, if the wind's not right, I'm walking a trail with a 30-year-old cut on one side and a 15-year-old cut on the other. And the dog, you know, sometimes the wind will influence which side the dog wants to be on. They want to naturally use the wind. Mm-hmm. And the dog's spending more time in the 30-year-old stuff than I would prefer. Then I simply, I simply give him a right hand you know, the 15 year olds on my right, yep. I give them a right hand and I just say in and I send them in there. It was more and more experience. They start to figure out. I talk a lot about a C pattern. So if I'm hunting a spot that if I'm walking an edge or a trail and the cover, I want the dogs in on the right, I want to run in a C. If I'm hunting a trail or I'm on a deer path where the, you know, I've got prime cover on both sides of me, then everybody would say quartering. I prefer more of a figure eight pattern than quartering. I think sometimes quartering, you're covering the same amount of ground more than you're not, but that's also seasonally dependent. Earlier in the season, I'd rather have them quarter. They just learn this through experience and and handling and such. So, you know, if you think about that figure eight, dog goes out to my right, kind of makes a loop, comes back to me, goes out to my left, makes a loop, come back to me. I'm the middle of the eight. They're not hunting behind me. 
but it, it, it's a modified, you know, yeah. out and back, out and back loop. Less of a straight line than you might conjure right. up if you're thinking of just purely quartering. Right. And I would tell Chuck, too, like next spring when the cover's down and it's thinner, yep. maybe you don't even go into prime cover. Maybe it's cover where the dog can see you a little bit better. It's a little too mature. If Chuck just keeps his mouth shut and, and if the dog goes over to the right, he just starts walking to the left and get that. And, and, and then I, you know, I used, I use a turn command sometimes it's just with my, I, I give a little whistle out of my mouth mm-hmm. now at this point, but when they're younger, I give two toots. So then they turn and they come back to my front and then they cast off to my left and I start to drift to the right. So I'm walking a zigzag, pretty healthy one too, 40 yards left. 40 yards front to the right and get just start influencing that dog to pay attention to where I am yep. in the grouse woods. You dogs, when you turn or you make a move, your dog's got to move with you. You know, it's got to turn with you. I- influencing is a good word. I, I feel like, you know, and, and relatively speaking, Chuck is he and his dog are they're light on experience that time repetition that we're talking he said i think at one point he said about 15 days in the two seasons so 30 days so you know they're well on their way but you can influence you can influence that kind of behavior and the dogs will pick up on that stuff as you're saying you change directions and you know if the dog you can kind of tell if the dog seems clueless as to where you're going that's where maybe you give that quick whistle or but but you were kind of pointing out give the dog a chance to sort of look back at you and see that you're right. going left and then he'll start to key in on that very quickly. And you know, you can do different stuff. I mean, I started six, seven, eight months old, start teaching the in command where, you know, I'm lucky to live on a little plot of land where I, I can, I can keep some birds or you can even, you can even get bumpers, right. Or tennis balls. Mm-hmm. And I walk down the driveway and I say in and point and the dog goes, the dog goes in and finds that object and then retrieves it. So like we're looking for stuff, you know, in here. Yeah. Or you can go back to the classic retriever training and play the, play the baseball drill where you put the dog in the pitcher's mound and a pile of bumpers on first base and a pile of bumpers on left base. And, and you point mm-hmm. and, and, and say in or over or whatever you want to use. And Doggo gets a bumper, and, and so it gets used to you sending it in a direction you want it to go. Yep. But as they get more and more and more contacts, they just naturally understand yes. this is where I want to be. Yep. Yeah, and I, I know even with my dogs, I have it's it's just like a not even thinking about it, but natural. Like if I want them to go, if I'm on a trail and I want them to go to the right, you know, I'm like moving my body, you know, using your whole body language to hey, go in here and. Sometimes they run in there and come right back out to the trail, and then I'm scratching my head standing there. But I think we all we all go through that, and that is one of the things to think about if you're on trails. You know, the, like you said, path of least resistance. The dogs will use that. They see you using that, so you got to kind of think your way around that. And different times of the year lend themselves to getting off the trail. Like right now, covers really thin. You know, this is the time to just go wander and get off the trail and get into some of those clumps and those objectives and stuff. Well, I mean, also the trails are getting the most pressure. Mm-hmm. Now, they, they they pull birds to them at different times of the year and different times of the day. Yep. But but also, you know, dog, bird gets flushed three times off a trail and shot at in a, in a, in a 
you know, a predator approaching and the dog, it's just going to say, I'm just going to live in here. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going back to that trail. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So well, let's move on here. This is, this is still Chuck's questions. Um, his lab likes to be 40 to 70 yards ahead of him most of the time. When he gets out of sight, he usually stops and waits until he sees me, but then starts moving ahead. This repeats over and over. I'm often having to stop him until I get back in gun range. I assume staying within shooting distance is desired. How do I keep my lab from ranging too far ahead of me? So this is just pattern work. I assume what he's talking about is the dog runs 40 to 70 yards down the trail of least resistance and is running like a yo-yo. Mm-hmm. Out and back, out and back, out and back. That's not productive. we got to get this dog going east-west. Yep, into the cover. Into the cover. And so that's just handling and training and, and figuring it out. Pointing dog runs 70 down a trail, locks up on point. That's one thing. Labrador runs down there 70 yards and flushes a bird. There's a lost opportunity. Yep. So the dog needs to learn that we need to come together at the bird, you know, I probably hunt my dogs a little further than classic gun range for mm-hmm. a flushing dog. I have the ability to stop them with a whistle sit, but that dog gets, you know, if the dog's yo-yoing, then we got to really get the dog working east and west, and then it'll start to naturally adjust its pattern to the wind and to the conditions um, and, and the appropriate application. But if it's running north-south, out and back, out and back, that's not going to work. Now, if the dog's making a 40-yard cast in front of you and that's too far, then you you call it back into you. Your recall's got to be real solid. Yep. I got home from my trip and my, my three-and-a-half-year-old dog was literally out of control because the cover type had changed where we were hunting pretty thick undergrowth and now we're hunting a, a little bit different stuff back home and... She's just out there blazing, and, you know, I'm not going to lie. I put e-collar pressure on her every time she got too far out for comfortable search. Yep. You know, and, and then she's adjusted back where I, I don't have to poke her to remind her. And when I say poke, I mean, you know, once or twice a day. Yep. I, I'm just like, yeah, geez, oh, Pete, slow down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's... um well, conveniently, his next question was, how can I get my lab to stop yo-yoing? So, so he, rec- uh, he recognizes, and that's exactly what is going he's on. He's got to get into the woods and start walking a zigzag yeah. and the dog moving yep. east-west. Yep. Yep. You've got, you've got the dog sort of keyed on the trail. He's running up and down it, and lack of contacts, experience, the, the, the memories are not pulling the dog into the cover towards these objectives yet. So you're going to have to help the dog at this point yeah. go find that All stuff. the sensory. I, I'm convinced that, that, you know, my dogs eventually learn. Last night, I hunted my way towards uh, kind of a dried up wild raisin patch. Mm. And, and I'm going, you know, where wild raisin here grows is kind of low areas that hold seasonal water. And I'm convinced that they associate the smells of certain habitat types to contacts. But we're talking, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of contacts. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, the, the best the best time to train wild bird dogs when you have a young dog is to commit to those woodcock flights coming back in the spring 
and really working your dog on those woodcock. They, they're cagier, they run more, mm. there's less cover. You can see what the dog's doing. You can do with the dog. You're not worried about shooting anything. And just get those young dogs out there and get them on as many wild bird contacts as you can, but work on whatever application you're trying to apply. Yeah. Yep. And whatever, you know, whatever structural aspects of, of the hunting pattern that you're trying to fix. Yeah, spring is a spring is a good time to be in the woods for those, you know, the covers down that would that would be beneficial for Chuck and his and, dog. And carry and carry a blank gun and a small bumper. Yep. And when that dog flushes a bird within ten yards, fifteen yards of you, shoot the gun and throw the dog a retrieve for the reward. Obviously this dog really likes to retrieve, so how do how do we figure out how to use that possessiveness yep. to our advantage? The dog's gotta learn when we come together at the bird, I get the ultimate reward, which is what, you know, flushing dogs and retrievers want is a bird nest. Mm-hmm. Yep. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and Fred of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Uh, I was I was just going to say, too, the, you know, the trail thing, I mean, it can be, uh, I my my younger setter, Rose, she was very early on, she was, she, she was very east-west, like not on the trails at all. And just in the last year or two, she's kind of, like she's just so she can cover ground so fast that she'll pop out on a trail if I'm there, you know, which I, you know, I use them too. And she can, the problem with her is she can be 250 yards down the trail at the snap of fingers and then she'll go on point. And then I'm, you know, I'm walking past 250 yards of good cover that she didn't run through. And I'm, you know, talking right. under my breath and like, if a bird gets up, do I shoot or do I get to the point? So, you know, it just, 
dogs they kind of change and they can they can develop over time and sometimes i gotta i gotta get on her because she can like i said just cover ground too fast so it's sometimes you gotta just put that out of your mind and and hunt the ones you can hunt and, and not worry about the rest right right yeah you know as frustrating as it is yeah well anyways that was uh that was good uh the good questions from chuck and he asked if i maybe put you in touch with them and said when when sure. hun- hunting and hockey season is over he would he would check in with you so if if they ever happens. really are he said yeah. <laughs> yeah hockey season never really exactly ends, yep all right well thanks chuck and we're gonna move on to a bunch of these are these are none of these are as lengthy but we'll see what kind of discussion we can get into so more dog stuff so this question you don't steady your dogs to sit to flush how far do you let them chase after the shot? So is he um, is he correct in that, or I'm just I never know if it's my, a my dogs do not classically sit to the flush. Okay, if you spend enough time in the grouse woods and you flush enough birds, so my dogs are all steady to the whistle sit, and so when I'm doing training when they're young, I guess you could say I classically steady them to a degree where. You know, that woodcock and that grouse go up in the spring and I hit the whistle sit and then I shoot the gun and throw a retrieve for them, right? So it, it just amazes me. I, I was watching my seven-year-old boots uh, on Saturday. She's showing the presence of game and, and she's birdie and we're, co- you know, we're coming together at the bird at the right time. And the bird went. I didn't have any, any opportunity and she took maybe three or four steps forward and has her head up watching it fly off. Mm. So the grouse woods with flushing dogs will typically naturally steady a bird because they have to get their head up to see where that bird's falling. Yeah. Now, so I would call it, you know, Justin McGrail uses this term functionally steady. That's what I would say where I get my dog, get my dogs to where they are steady to the flush, functionally steady to the flush. They don't sit. There's on all four legs. I'd rather them move around a little bit so they can see, they can get a mark. And you can't get a mark if you're just barreling through the woods after a bird. Young dogs will do that. And that's where when they start to barrel, you hit the whistle stick and they just learn and learn and learn through more and more contacts that, you know, I got to come up and stop. And me also blowing the whistle, that it just becomes natural to them. And then I give them a little bit back, and, and they come up with their head up, and they're looking. And if they hear a shot and they see a fall, then, then they're off. Yeah. But if they hear a shot and they don't see a fall, then we just kind of get back to hunting. So it, it's one of those things where the, the cover type that we hunt for, for rough grouse naturally does that. Now, I'm not promising if I went out to South Dakota tomorrow and I'm in knee-high grass and a rooster goes out, that dog's not going to rip completely after that bird for, you know, the first few mm-hmm. contacts. And I've got to go back to the whistle sit or something. Because it can see but, the bird. And, yeah. Because it yeah. can see it. Right. You know, but it amazes me. Rick and I use our older dogs typically for duck hunting. And it amazes me that they just, you know, after the first 15 minutes of whining and us yelling at them, they just settle in and sit there in the door and watch. And they don't leave till we tell them to leave. Yeah. But I have the advantage that I hunt a lot. And so some I don't have to formally, classically train yep. as hard as some people because I get to hunt a lot and the dog's getting on-the-job experience yep. 
constantly and they learn pretty fast what needs to happen or they're not getting a retrieve. Yeah, that's, I mean, again, but we sit and talk about get your dog on birds, get your dog on, bir- you know, wild birds. That, the more you get to do it, the the more that they can learn themselves and it does help, you know. I was by, I was by a spot last night that used to tell a story. Yeah, yeah. Four or five years ago, and I was I was coming coming up a little ridge or something by little ridge. I mean, like a little hill. You know what I mean? Sure. You're going up a gradual hill. My dog made a cast and ran by, and then showed no indication of game, no nothing. And I think I was a little frustrated with it, with her that day. And a bird went up between us, which is unacceptable in the flushing dog world. I I should you know. Some days you're going to get foot flush birds, and some days you're going to get birds that fly out the back door. But if, if there's a bird in our front, they need to they need to find it and force that bird into flight. We've done everything right, and for whatever reason, she just blew right by that bird. Never knew it was there. Never indicated it. And that bird flushed, and I remember grabbing my whistle and sitting her, shooting the bird, and I made her sit there, and I went and picked up the bird. Yeah. I mean, I was that frustrated. So, you know, how formally are they trained? I, I mean, jumped a deer last night. River jumped a deer last night out of a bed. And I whistled sadder and, and, you know, got up to her. And I could tell she wanted to keep going. And I just kind of made a little bit of a turn the other direction and brought her over. But, you know, so maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit. Maybe it's, it's a combination of the dogs and myself. But the remote whistle sits not just for hunting, it's for safety, too. Yeah, yep, yep. Just like wool for a pointing dog. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. it sounds to me like, you, you know, I like the I like the McGrail term, functionally steady. I'd never heard him say that. Right. But you've got you've got enough control on it to keep control of the situation, but it's... Then if there's multiple birds there and the first one goes yep. and there's another bird 20 yards in front, they're not taking that bird out. Yeah, yeah. But that that's about... You know, that's somewhere the end of the second adult season and in the third adult season where I start to not have to worry about that stuff so sure, much. Sure, sure. Yeah, and with a younger dog, you're you're paying much more attention to right. that and you just haven't had the reps. So next question is kind of a continuation, but we'll see if there's anything else to drum up here. Opinions on sit to flush, shot, and fall just curious i have my opinions and love the debate so you kind of laid out how you approach it anything else in there about sort of sh- the, the shooting and the fall and that kind of thing are you playing dog games or not so if you're also using your spaniel or your retriever and hunt test or field trials or, or whatever you're doing where that's a requirement yep. of the judging process i think it's more important than in wild bird hunting situations, you can go back and forth with a lot of people on, you know, dog flushes a pheasant. I want it to sit sit immediately. I tend to I tend to want my dogs functionally steady, um, and then they can break on the fall. Yeah, you know, so I, I don't want them running stuff up in front of us when we get to the prime age years of their lives. So you know, there's a great debate, right? But I also don't want my dog, you know, parking her butt on the ground when I shoot a bird and the cover's over her head and she can't, she can't necessarily have the, I say she because I've got all females, the dog can't move enough to get a good mark. 
So that's where that functionally steady, I think, is appropriate while bird hunting. And then, you know, if you're going to shoot enough birds, you're going to get cripples. Yep. That's all there is to it. Yep. it it's, it's the reality of the game. And I'd rather have that dog in that area of the fall as fast as I can possibly get them there without having to worry about release and, and obedience and everything else. Yep. But if you're playing dog games, it's, it's a requirement. You know, if you're if you're hunting ducks, if you're hunting ducks and whatever, it's a requirement that that dog sits there till you release it. So you got to make priority what you want to make a priority. But typically, age and contacts and experience will take care of some of the, the utilitarian use of flushing dogs, retrievers, and spaniels. Yeah. Yeah, those those retrieves and those dead bird or those cripple bird finds, you know, they they happen a lot more quickly and swiftly if the dog has a visual on the bird and just goes right to it. And right. I mean, you've but I, I don't think a dog wildly chasing after a bird has the ability to mark as well. Yes. Yep. And I would I would entirely agree. With, like I, what I would desire out of my dogs, which they are not right now and this is some of it is sort of the hunting season slippage but also i just haven't really done a, a lot of work in this area is i would prefer steady to flush so or steady steady to shot i should say so bird gets up there's that added commotion of the grouse in the air like it's just a lot more uh calming and relaxing to to shoot your gun while your dog is sort of functionally steady to use that term Correct. where the dog is is steady until you shoot and then at the shot then it's kind of then it's a different story so i i would prefer my dogs to be at that point they are not right now but i would very much agree with your thinking in that you know and then people argue well how you know you don't get to shoot at low birds well i don't shoot at low birds anyway yeah it goes back to kill the ones you can kill and, and don't worry about the rest that one escaped and even if that dog's sitting there and it's in front of me and the bird's low, I'm not blowing a shot five feet over its head. Yeah. You know, anyway. So, yeah, it's just, unfortunately, low birds are, are part of reality and they get away. Yeah. Yep. All right. Next one. Next question. How many yards do you let your flushing dogs range out? Depends on the cover, time of year. Yep. And, uh, you know, cover type time of the year setting conditions all of the above so you know i would typically say and sometimes i don't know how it happens it happens probably because i get to hunt a lot but your ability to read the cover and find lanes and move and have an idea of where you think the bird's going to go and putting yourself on that if i told you i'm walking the edge of a clear cut or I'm walking a trail, my dog flushes a bird 50 yards to my right and it, fl and, and it flies 20 yards in front of me, right to left, it is, it, 50 yards to my right is different than 50 yards in front of me. Mm -hmm. So I would say on average, my dogs there, when the cover's down, when the leaves are down and stuff, or, or anywhere between 30 to 50 yards, if they start making game and I'm not in a position to, to come together with them at the bird, then I just whistle sit them and move up. Yeah. Now go back to September when where we hunt, we've got heavy fern cover that's sometimes waist to chest high. 
you know, it might be more like 10 or 15 yards, but the, the cover is naturally slowing them down. There's more resistance yeah. there. So I would tell you that depending on where you're at and what you're doing, 50 yards to the right can be an advantage. Go back to the first question. That guy would be thrilled to have his dog 50 10 yards, yards in front of him, right, yeah. 50 <laughs> yards to the right and yeah. running back to him and then making another C in there. Yep. You know, but 50 yards to the front blowing birds out does me no good. They're going to find the bird at the end of a cast and flush it. And you're not going to get a shot. That's going to happen, right? That's wild bird hunting. Yeah. Yep. Just like just like if I've got a I got a dog on point, sometimes I'm not gonna get ahead of my dog to make my circle before the bird goes out. It's just you know, it's right. a, it is what it is. Like you never know where the bird is in the dog's work and obviously we're relying on them to handle them through the experience and stuff that they've got, but um knowing that but I, some I, are gonna get know, away. I want my dogs out there actively mm-hmm. hunting hard and searching. And running across my feet back and forth, I just don't think is as productive at, as, you know, giving a dog a, its, it's brain, head. Yeah. letting it use its natural instincts and its experience to, to go find birds. And, you know, you know, range is one of these things. It's a number, so we can talk about it, and it's a label right. you put on things. But so much of what you're talking about is feel. You know, if you're... If your dog is fifty yards to the right, but you can see the cover that the dog is working, you're you're gonna shut up. But if it's sure. if it's doing something you don't want it to be doing, then you know, maybe you whistle sit or it's getting birdie and and it's all it's all based on feel experience. I feel like the worst thing you can do to stun a young dog's development is to overhandle it yeah. and run your mouth and your whistle the whole time. Yep. Let that dog learn where birds live. And then figure out how the dog and I are going to come together at the bird. Yeah. Don't you. don't stunt its ability to search and find and identify. Oh, there's a group of spruce trees in this aspen cut. Oh, there's an oak tree in this aspen cut. Don't don't stifle that natural instinct to find birds just because you you know you're mad that you're one and a half year old you didn't get a shot at that bird. Just yep. be patient and then figure out, okay, my dog's hunting really hard. It's searching really hard. It's not getting bored. What, you know, my dog's, my dog's range starts to open up when they're, when they're consistently not finding birds, mm-hmm. when they're consistently finding birds, it seems, it seems to get a little more thorough and close, but it's opening up when they're not finding birds because they're, they're working really hard to go find them. Yeah. All right. You commented on this briefly already tips for getting your flusher to hunt a little slower so when that when your three-year-old was running fast what are you doing i mean we did talk about it but boy sometimes that's the natural athleticism of the dog Mm. and you're gonna have and you can fight it and fight it and fight it all you want sometimes it might make sense to go to a c cover to start the day and let that dog blow off a little steam Mm. But the most special dog, the most special dogs I've ever owned had this just innate ability where they, they set their pace at probably, what, 70, 80% of max. And one, it helped their endurance, but two, they just, you know, they, they always left a little something in reserve and they just set that pace. Whether that's through massive amounts of exposure or whether that's through 
that dog's genetics or, or God-given talent. I, I mean, you know, Rick and I bred enough dogs out of out of dogs to know, like, whoa, this dog got that from its mom. You know, Wolf and May, right? May May's a little bit of a fire breather, where like her dad, where Wolf just would settle right in at that eighty percent and just go. So some of it is, have you worn the edge off a young dog, especially a young dog, have you worn the edge off of it and put the dog down in a seat cover first instead of putting it in your prime spot where it's just losing its mind? But I think it's experience and exposure and it is patterning, right? So you've got to work on the dog on the pattern. If it's running fast, that's fine as long as it's applying the appropriate pattern. And if the dog gets out to the edge, call it back in recast it and hopefully it starts to learn the closer I find this bird to my partner the more retreats I get but I, I'm not sure you're taking a gene you're taking the genetics and the, and the natural athleticism and speed of the dog and trying to get it to slow down I, I don't I don't know how to do that or I'm not a good enough trainer to know other than I know I like that I like watching that yeah you know but it's about getting the appropriate pattern and that a lot of that comes through comes from exposure. Do you ever take like intentionally take the dog to like thicker cover or anything like that? If you, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. sure. Take the dog to a black, blackberry branch. But yeah. Then are you making the you know are you making the dog cover shy? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. Hopefully you're not. Hopefully it's genetics. Say you know, yeah, th this is what I got to hunt. But you can certainly take it to to that type of cover but it, it's more or less getting the pattern established and have and getting enough exposure that the dog learns that i've got to find these birds within this range of my my handler or i'm not getting a retrieve yeah and some dogs like to run and some dogs like to hunt yeah and i i appreciate your comments on the you know the dog finding its pace like i think if you you hunt with your dog enough, you can kind of tell, okay, hey, we're blowing off steam here. Like, you're out right. of control. You're running too hard versus a dog that is in maybe moving fast and hunting hard but in control. There, Like, there's a clear right. difference there. Right. It's like I talk to the, the hockey players a lot about playing with emotion or playing emotional, you know. Yeah. It's different. I, I was going to ask you that I was watching the wild game a week ago or something. And do you, do you think that being a hockey player slash hockey fan and like intensely focusing on the, the puck uh, maybe helps grouse shooting? Have you ever thought about that? I think what helps grouse shooting is being a good athlete in practice and having a proper gun fit. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But there's no doubt why are some dudes in the NHL and I'm not. They're just <laughs> right. more talented than I am. Right. Why, why Why do some dogs, you know, why do some dogs find six birds in one cover and, and you know, I could have run my other dog and they could have found two. I, I, you know, a lot of variables in place there. Yeah. yeah. I, I think hockey players being good athletes, overall athletes, are, are you know, one of the hardest sports ever to learn. Um, and master, it, it can't can't hurt as an athlete. I, you know the best wing shots I know are all pretty good athletes. Yeah, visual hand eye. Yep. Right. Yep. All right. Next guy. He. It's not a question. He just. He said Springer's exclamation point. So, I, I included it only because I don't know if it was a friendly ribbing or what. <laughs> I. I. You know. I, I often. You know. People ask me a lot why. 
you know, I haven't gone the Springer route and I, I genuinely don't fully know enough about the breed other than, you know, I, I have way more experience with Cockers and Labradors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of my partners hunts and breeds Cocker, English Cockers, and I've got the American Cocker. My dad's hunting partner grew up, had Springers. I've seen some really, really good Springers. I wouldn't even know where to go to look to, to find a Springer. I, you know, some of the field trial bred Springers I've seen might, you know, I don't know. I, I, I just, Springers are great dogs. I've seen some really good ones. Yep. Haven't seen a lot of bad ones. I just, you know, I kind of got my program that works for us mm-hmm. with these Labradors and the Cocker was an experiment and I like Brad's dogs and Brad's English Cockers and, you know, so, you know, horses for courses, yep. and, you know. When you got, when you like got the, um, some people like Scott, when you got the American Cocker was, were, did you have in the back of your mind that you were going to hunt with it or like, I, I never knew the story oh, like, yeah, why you of got course. that dog. My, you know, so. My dogs are, sometimes they're indoor dogs, sometimes they're outdoor dogs. I got, you know, kennel run set up at the lake and kennel run set up at the house and pretty deluxe indoor-outdoor accommodations for them at the house. And, you know, Carrie doesn't want them in her her house when they've been hunting all day and they stink and they're muddy and they lay down in a mud puddle. But she wanted... um, at the time, she wanted a dedicated 100% smaller indoor dog. Yeah. With, an, you know, with some bit of an off switch. And I say that because we babysat a cocker, an English cocker for Justin McGrail. It was like eight months old. We babysat that dog for a month when Justin went out west. And my kids were at that age where they took baths. And that dog was, uh, didn't have much off switch at the time. And, but as an eight month old puppy, but it jumped right in the bathtub. With <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. So that kind of ruined the, the English talker drink for me, <laughs> at least for that moment. And so I just did my research. And, and from what I can tell, there's two or three lines of hunting American cockers left in the country. And uh, we got Pippa. Now it turns out that Pippa would rather be with the big dogs and hunt than be my wife's lap dog, and which is how we ended up with Ted, the half Maltese, half uh, Yorkshire Terrier. Um, but yeah, so you know, Pippa's uh, Pippa's just like the other dogs. Sometimes she's in, sometimes she's out. Is she like six now? But she's eight. Eight? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So Pippa. Um, so I said I'd never own a dog that did hunt. An English cocker wasn't an option. I needed a smaller dog. Yeah. And I started doing research on American Cockers, and that's how we ended up with her. And, you know, I almost gave her away the first two years of her life. Really? I, I, I couldn't be happier now. That's Just cool. super, super immature and slow to develop compared to the Labradors. Yeah. Well, I definitely smiled when I saw the tailgate photo of her in a big grouse the other day. <laughs> oh, she worked that She worked that bird to perfection and, and just a, a, a great retrieve and you know, she's a tool compared to the labs that are toolboxes, but she's like a specialty. I mean, yeah. She, she, I put her down in smaller, more micro covers. Okay. I mean, talk, you know, if I need a dog that I don't want to risk being at 50 yards, then, then she's the answer. Yeah. Right? How does she, you know? does she work? Is she like, is like, you know, like people will say like English cockers are like just sort of vacuum cleaners in front of you. Like what's her style? Yes, she hunts a lot like an English cocker. Okay. Yeah. Maybe not the foot speed of an English cocker, yep. but she might have one of the better noses I've ever had with a dog. Hmm. 
And I don't know if that's her big, giant, floppy ears and just being closer to the ground. Yeah. But her passion to hunt is wild. I, you know, I think I told you the story about her swimming across a frozen or a flooded river and retrieving her grouse for Rick. God, I don't know if I remember that. Rick and I were hunting along a river, and a, and a bird went. Rick shot it, and it landed kind of, you know, where the grassy bank meets mm-hmm. the river. And uh, and he, we were probably twenty feet above the river on a pretty steep bank, and he starts yelling at me, "Call Pippa." And I'm like, what do you mean call Pippi? He's like, she's got the bird. I'm like, so your Labrador and my American Cocker swam across the river and my American Cocker got the bird before your Labrador? Call her. And so I started whistling. She she was running back and forth on the bank, not knowing if she wanted to jump back in and swim back over. With and the then birds. once Rick called his dog back over yeah. the river, I called her and she jumped back in, swam back across with a very wet grouse. And, yeah. That's awesome. Um, all right. The best thing about oh, Pippa, ahead. though, is her mouth is so small that she will nose a bird over onto its, uh, you know, onto its breast and grab it between the wings on the back. Oh, really? Yeah. So just perfectly so there. She never will bring you. She'll sometimes bring me one by the head, dragging it, but she will never grab the bird by the breast. Huh. That's funny. I'm convinced she'd retrieve a duck. She loves to do it. So. Yeah, I have three other Labradors, so I'm not even going to take that chance. <laughs> uh, all right. British Field Lab or American Lab? Your thoughts? Um, From my understanding, I, I've never owned a British Field Lab. I I like a very specific type of confirmation and size, and that's, for the most part, pretty available in the, in the American Field Trial Line Labrador. Yeah. And all my dogs are pretty heavy in American field trial labs and hunt test dogs. I, I, ideal pedigree for me is, you know, some field champions, some, some master hunters and some meat dogs, right? My, my one dog that is really pure field trial stuff is a little vocal for me and doesn't have the best off switch, but for the most part, I think there's some differences in personality. The British field dogs, by reputation, probably have a little bit better off switch. Maybe don't have the pure speed. But when you really watch the videos and stuff, from what I can tell, they uh, the real pure British dogs are, are not that much different conformationally from the U.S. dogs. Uh, so I... I you know, I we've stuck with our program for so long that it's it it is what it is. Yeah. So Nick, can we pause for a second? Yeah, no problem. All right, hang on. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own 
Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.